Before we kick off this episode, we wanted to apologise for the sound quality. We had a problem with the original recording and have had to use the backup, but Grace's words were too good for us not to publish this episode. This is a warning that today's discussion contains reference to sexual assault, which some listeners may find distressing. Welcome to the S Less Travel, tracing feminist pathways with Amelia and Sabrina. We're making space for stories and feminist journeys, inviting guests to share three books, two songs and one object, things that have seen their feminist friends along the road. Hi everyone, we're very excited to be talking to Grace M. Cho today. Grace is the author of Haunting the Korean Diaspora, Shame, Secrecy and the Forgotten War, which received a 2010 book award from the American Sociological Association. Her latest book, Taste Like War, was published in May this year with Feminist Press, and we can't wait to read it. Her writings have appeared in journals such as The New Inquiry, Poem Memoir Story, Context, Gastronomica, Feminist Studies, Women's Studies Quarterly, and Qualitative Inquiry. She is Associate Professor of Sociology and Anthropology at the College of Staten Island. Goldsmith was lucky enough to have an in-the-flesh visit from Grace pre-pandemic, and when we found out, we were really jealous. So it's great to have a follow-up of sorts with um, their new feminist cohort and to keep the conversation going. We have lots to ask, but let's begin with, Grace, where are you? Where are you in the world? Where are you in your home? And where are you in your body, heart, soul? And you can answer in any way that feels right to you today. Okay, so I am currently in my home in Brooklyn, New York. I am in my bedroom. And where am I otherwise? Well, I just had a book. I did a book talk last night for my new book, which was very exciting. So my mind was a little overstimulated last night. And today I feel a little bit like I have a hangover, even though I didn't drink anything. <laughs> so I have a little bit of a hangover from just from the, the excitement of uh, a book tour. But otherwise, you know, very happy to be in conversation with you. I had a fantastic visit to Goldsmiths in December. Um, I love London and I'm looking forward to coming back because I'm already in conversation about a, an in-person visit there. <laughs> yes, we would love that. That is amazing. We can't wait to have you back, Grace. And I hope the excitement hangover doesn't last too much longer. <laughs> or maybe you want to ride it for a while more. To be fair, I hear that they are the best kind of hangovers. <laughs> I, I, I would take an excitement hangover every day. Yes. <laughs> so thank you for that, Grace. Let's start looking at your feminist journey with the first book you'd like to share today. The first book I'd like to share, I think I'll go in chronological order. Because the three books that I chose sort of tell a little bit of a story about my 20s. So the first book is The Bluest Eye by Toni Morrison. It was the first Toni Morrison book I had read. And I believe I read it, I want to say it was right after I graduated from college. So I was about 22, 23. Um, Amazingly, I had gone through life not having read anything by Toni Morrison. But if you think about where I grew up, which was a small town in rural Washington state that was um, very xenophobic, sort of the home to a lot of 
right wing, um, what they now call white nationalists, but you know, to put it more plainly, a, a lot of white supremacist groups. I mean, I don't know that I even knew who Toni Morrison was when I was growing up. And then I had heard a little bit about her when I got to college, she actually had come to my campus to, I think she was receiving an honorary degree. So that was around the time that I graduated and I decided that I wanted to start with her first book. So I read The Bluest Eye and it was completely a revelation for me not just the content of the story sort of centering around this young black girl in the, I think it was set in the 1940s, but, but it was, I think the way that she sort of showed how it was all of these social forces that ultimately led to the protagonist going mad at the end. And for me, having had a mother who had schizophrenia, she developed signs of schizophrenia starting when I was 15, it just gave me sort of like this whole new way of thinking about what had happened to my mother. And it was something that I had been searching for as an adolescent, but I could find nothing, nothing at all in the 1980s, um, even into the 1990s that had acknowledged the role of racism or the role of structural violence on um, her mental health. And so when I was, when I was, an adolescent sort of thinking about what all the changes that my mother was going through, the only explanation was that it was a biological disease. It was a chemical imbalance. She had a broken brain. It had nothing to do with her social history. It had nothing to do with trauma. And the voices that she heard were really just a symptom of that biological disease. And so even at the time, I knew that that wasn't that wasn't true. It couldn't possibly have been true because I knew that there was more to the story, but I didn't exactly know what that story was. So I think that that's part of the reason that The Bluest Eye really moved me um, in such a profound way. And it sort of set me on this path towards rethinking the entire narrative that I had been given as, as a teenager um, in relation to my family's history. Thank you for sharing that, Grace. It's a, a really powerful sentiment that comes out in, in that book and that you spoke about there, about um, Pakola's descent in, into madness and that tie in with, with race and, and how you found that those, those topics so personally worked, worked with you and how you so beautifully encapsulated in your, in your two books as well. So thank you for that. I wanted to um, mention as well, one of our other guests also put this book into her feminist arsenal so we're really excited that it's come up twice um, as you mentioned Toni Morrison's such a, a force of nature and, and her work I think sits quite beautifully in a feminist arsenal um, and as, as a companion and, and a guiding force I wondered if you could talk to us a little bit more about how this book that you said you read in, in your early 20s, how it sat with you um, over time, and if there are any lessons that have really hit home from that book with you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it was one of those books that I just never really forgot. And to be more specific, it wasn't so much that I, that I remembered the plot or the characters. It was that I never forgot the feeling, the affective experience of reading that book, that I both felt traumatized by reading it, but I also felt empowered by reading it. You know, I did, you know, I returned to it again later. I went back to reread it. And one of the things that stuck with me 
was at the end, there was a little bit of an, I guess it was like a Q&A with Toni Morrison, where she was talking about how she wrote it in such a way that she was always shifting the perspective because she wanted the readers to understand that they were complicit. They were complicit with what happened to Nicola because it's so easy to look at the case of a child that has been raped, for example, and to point the fingers and say, well, this is the father's fault without sort of widening the lens to look at what the various societal um, complicities are. And that as readers, we all have something to do with um, the situation that, that Nicola found herself in. I think another thing that stuck with me was that the other characters, the other girls, and I, I have to say, I can't even remember their names right now, but um, uh, that at the end that they, they were expressing a, a sense of doubt or guilt that maybe they had been responsible um, or that they, you know, they talked about how they would sometimes see Piccola flapping her arms like she was flying or doing things that sort of signal this is a, you know, this is a person who has lost their mind or who has gone mad, but then questioning what their responsibility was in, in acknowledging that, in seeing her, in, you know, seeing her past because they all knew her, but they, they never really wanted to look at her. Right. And so, you know, it just raises a lot of questions for me still, you know, I think living in an urban area, living in New York city, when we, have um, so many social problems that are quite visible on the street, yet what is an extremely common phenomenon is that people pretend like it's not happening. They pretend like mm. they don't see those people who are on the street who might be going through some sort of psychic distress or um, other types of distress. And so I think that it has, I always internalize that to question myself then to think about what my relationship is to that person on the street that maybe sometimes I don't want to look at because it's so uncomfortable to look at them. Yeah, I think that's a, a really interesting concept you bring up, Grace, about this complicity with other people's madness and something that um, very much reading your first book, I really started thinking about uh, the reality of madness and voices and, and actually connected to that depression that actually sometimes the world is crazy enough that it will make me crazy and you yeah. know we have this this view around you know someone being depressed someone being mad someone hearing voices but of course what look, look at this thing that we're living in all of us look at the situations that so many people live through hearing voices can sometimes make sense and can soothe and it makes me think of um the prologue of Samir Katten's book Australian armor she talks about her mother who's in hospital and she is um, hearing voices but in her first language in Bengali and um, there's also a, a veteran who's there as well and it's this really traumatizing time for her and yet the doctors Australian the white doctors can't understand literally they can't understand the language but also they can't understand this kind of fractured pain diasporic life of, and, and being situated in this place and with people who are connected with war and destruction and trauma and I think your book and, uh, and many others have made me really start to consider the value of these voices what they might be telling us and maybe how we might start listening to them a little bit more and listening to the fantasy the wilderness what what stories are, are hidden inside them 
Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I mean, that was something that I, uh, I, it's something that I talk about in my new book about how part of the journey that I was on throughout my relationship with my mother was having to come to this point when I learned to stop being afraid of her voices, you know, because as a teenager, I think I internalized all of those stereotypes that we are given about people who hear voices, that they're dangerous or that the voices tell them to do violent things. Um, and so once I sort of got past that, it was amazing because I started to listen to them. And it was almost as if I could invite them to come sit at the table with us and have this conversation. And when I started to listen to them, they were telling me things about my family history because the voices were not random. You know, they were making references to historical moments in my mother's past and also in the larger history of the Korean diaspora. But yeah, I think you're right that it's, it's society that's insane. You know, we live in an insane society. How can you not be mad sometimes, right? Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I think that we need to think about madness as a manifestation of um, oppressive systems and the way in which they sort of become imprinted or inscribed on the body. And of course, which bodies have more accessibility to, to be mad? Yeah. You know, what madness looks mm -hmm. on, on my body is different to someone else's and how accepted that can be and how dangerous it can be mad in, in certain in bodies, bodies of color and women, all of these different things. And so it, madness is this kind of wide spectrum of ideas that some people can in effect get away with and many others um you know have their, their lives kind of traumatized in some way because of it not because of necessarily the madness itself but because of the way society is engaging with that madness absolutely. what it means to them yeah yeah absolutely and i don't know um what things are like um in the uk i don't know to what extent mental illness is um criminalized, but it's a huge problem that we have in the United States. And so I teach a class called the Sociology of Mental Illness. And one of the conversations that um, is often initiated by the students as they start reading the things that I assign is that they ask this question, why is it that if you're white and you've been diagnosed with schizophrenia, or if you have the experience of hearing voices, um, there's often sympathy and, um, and at least some attempt to find something that actually resembles care, right? Whereas if you live in a black or brown body and you exhibit those same behaviors, the most common response is incarceration. And so in fact, in the United States today, the three largest providers of quote unquote mental health care are urban jails because the state of mental health care has just completely vanished, you know? So yeah, so it, it, it definitely speaks to that question that you raised, Amelia. It's definitely a, a staggering statistic that um, the largest provider is, um, is prison, but a very scary thing to think um, and how narrow are structures of what class is sane are and mm. how they are race and class and, and gendered within that as well and um, I also really love the point that you said about um, about your mother and being able to bring those voices to the table I think that's a really beautiful way of encapsulating how can these voices benefit us if they're there what, what can we learn from them and what are we ignoring by not listening to this wider spectrum of um, mental health and mental capacities 
I think, yeah. Um, yeah, very, very beautiful point. Thank you, Grace. Thank you. And could you tell us about your second book? My second book is Teaching to Transgress by Bell Hooks. Again, the first book that I read by Bell Hooks, I was getting my master's in education at the time at Harvard. I found that the, the culture at Harvard was psychically violent <laughs> um, because of the, the, the level of elitism there. And, um, you know, when I read this book, I felt like it, it was so different from every other message that I got at that institution. Um, because it was talking about teaching in a way that was sort of doing the opposite of what the institution was enacting. Um, because she was talking about how oftentimes education can be education for domination, for teaching students how to sort of step into their roles as, <clears throat> as people who are going to be dominated by various types of hierarchies. And that within education, we have the possibility for um, liberatory education. So I guess that was the first thing that, that spoke to me about her book. And she gave a lot of examples about how, you know, in, in academia specifically, like whether you're in college or in graduate school, sometimes the engagement with academic literature does a really good job of making students or readers feel stupid. <laughs> and I really related to that as well, you know, because I think a lot of my my college experience was like that, where I never felt like I was particularly smart. I was afraid of theory. As an undergrad, I double majored, or I started out as a double major in Portuguese and Brazilian studies and comparative literature, but I never finished the complete major because I was afraid to take the literary theory class because I didn't think I was smart enough to study theory. And so then she has this chapter in the book about feminist, What's it called? Hold on. I'm going to actually look at the the title of the the chapter. Theory as liberatory practice. That's that's the title of the chapter. Where she talks about how she, the, the reason she came to theory is because she was in pain, and theory offered her a way of understanding that pain and and putting it within a social context. And so I had never really thought of theory that way. I always thought of it as something that only really smart people could engage in or have access to. And so she sort of talks about how, I guess through the, you know, the history of feminist theory at this point when it was written in the nineties, a lot of it was very disengaging um, to people who didn't have access to that type of academic language. And that it was that primarily feminist theory written by white feminists was privileged over sorts of oral traditions of theory among black women. Um, so again, it was something that really spoke to me and gave me this message that I don't have to conform to the you know, academia standard of what's considered theory, I can do something else. And also that theory might be a way for me to again, make sense of the life that I've been given and the, ex the set of experiences that I had been through, which were you know, as, as a child, again, very, very violent, structurally violent, not physically violent. Um, so it was really quite a revelation to read this book and to see that it was talking about the experience that I was going through while I was getting my master's degree. Mm. And theory as a tool that we can use to understand, but also expand, mm -hmm. it expands even, I guess, what theory is. I feel very much that 
the the way that we're being taught on our on our MA is really encouraging us to use the theory and then actually look at all the bits around it and the sides and underneath and the people that might have come to it from a really different perspective and see what it looks like from there and also how that theory lands in your body mm-hmm. like what mm-hmm. that feels like to you and I've been really heartened by you know when we talk about affect and this this thing that's pushing and reaching between us it's not theory on its own is theoretically nothing but it's how it intertwines with us how we listen and and, and play with it that feels like it's that's the real stuff that's the stuff that we kind of want to get into yeah and that point between theory and, and learning and education in general and how that relates to liberty and, and freedom it gives it that dual power like like you were saying and it grounds us I guess more deeply in in the history that's come before us and the knowledge that's already there but it also gives us that room to build upon it and to make something new and potentially uh, break down structures that we didn't know existed before so I, I do think there is so much power in that um, I was also wondering in terms of your experience at Harvard you mentioned it was psychologically violent would you be happy to talk a little bit about what structures in place built that for you yeah, yeah so I was in a master's of education program a program that they titled risk and prevention basically talking, using the language of communities that were marginalized, um, labeling them as at risk. So I, I went into it not really thinking much about the language or the label, but knowing that I was interested in the, the phenomenon of marginalization and um, sort of imagine myself maybe working in this field after, um, after finishing the degree. But what I found was that there were real, no real conversations about structural violence within the program. There were no conversations about racism. And they, you know, the, the faculty would sort of have us go into these communities and have conversations about what was going on with children and families, sort of in a vacuum without acknowledging the history of racism in the United States, without looking at class structures. And I often found myself to be the person who would raise the question in the classroom, um, only to find that a lot of the students weren't comfortable talking about it. And at one point I was even taken aside by one of the professors who said to me, you know, you're always talking about race and it makes the other students uncomfortable and I want you to stop. Oh, <laughs> oh no. And so this was, I guess it was 1995. Yeah, and so it just, you know, to me, it just made me realize that um, Harvard was not the place for me. Um, it was an institution that was going to continue to reproduce these hierarchies and that if they had any concern at all about marginalized communities, it was all just lip service. So I, you know, like I spent that whole year just feeling really angry. I was just like seething the whole time. Um, And so, you know, bell hooks writing was something that gave me some comfort. It helped to ground me. And also just to hear her tell similar stories about academia was validating of my experience. You know, I also had, I mean, another example of an experience that I had there was that I, I kept meeting other Asian American students 
who made these assumptions about me because I'm Asian American, they would say things like, oh, well, um, I bet both of your parents have PhDs, when in fact, I'm the first generation in my family to go to college. And so it was just that I, I felt like a complete misfit. So I think that that experience of being an outsider in itself is psychologically violent, in addition to the way that they're reproducing the, these inequalities. Uh, and I, I imagine uh, that there are some courses and places that maybe have begun to include these conversations that, that move beyond just the othering uh, of marginalized voices. But I also have this kind of frightening feeling that there must be so many courses, so, so much curriculum that just doesn't even think about this stuff and probably is still saying, yeah, no, race isn't relevant to this. Yeah. No, no, you don't, you don't need to do the female thing. Or, and, you know, you hear it anecdotally, but it, it's still real. And people think, you know, if you add, add intersectional to something and maybe post-colonial, then you're like, I've done the work. This is it. We're, we're good. And I wonder what the, what the practice looks like in so many of these places, because uh, even if this, you know, this is 95, but I, I don't think by, by any stretch that even in kind of like left-wing schools, in art schools, I, I think this stuff is still really rife, and it, but it can be hard, particularly if you feel that you are the othered person, to always have to bring it up. Mm-hmm. And so how incredible that you had that book. I think Teaching to Transgress is still a book that is so alive in so many people's hearts and is a companion to many people and teachers and lecturers and to know that we're, we're not alone in the struggle but yeah I think there's I think there's probably still a way to go hey yeah yeah for sure I mean I we are still dealing with these questions on my campus where I teach and um, I saw some survey results from black students who said that they felt that they were often silenced by professors when they tried to bring up race so it, it definitely is still uh, still going on. To end the story about the impact of t- teaching to transgress for me, um, I moved to New York the following year and she was teaching at City College. So I landed in New York on a Saturday, I think. And then on Monday, I called up City College and I said, I need to find Bell Hooks. Can you tell me where I can find her? And they said, well, (laughs) she's teaching in such and such room at 12 o'clock today. And so I got on the subway, I went up there and I just showed up in her classroom. I crashed her class and told her that I had read this book and it meant so much to me. And so then she invited me to participate in a seminar that she was holding at her house. It was like a weekly seminar on the nonfiction work of Toni Morrison. And so then for the next year, she was my mentor. So I, you know, I was extremely lucky to have had this experience. But during the course of that year, she introduced me to Teresa Hakencha's book, Dictate. And she said, well, you know, I don't know what you'll think of this book, but I think you should take a look at it. And I really wish I could write a book like that. And so I thought, oh, I, I must read this. <laughs> you know, if this is what Bell wishes she could write. <laughs> and to be totally honest, I didn't understand it at all when I first read it. And I, I, you know, I still don't know that I would go so far as to say that I understand it. But what I want to say about this book is that it had a profound impact on me and a whole generation of Korean diasporic writers and artists. So it is a book that is very fragmented 
it's difficult to categorize. It, you know, is partially autobiographical, partially drawing on historical texts. I think it maybe it's called a novel. It's, it's sort of centered around various female figures, including um, her mother, Joan of Arc, Yu Guansu, who was a, a very young Korean revolutionary who was one of the leaders of the, of the liberation movement against Japan. So it, and I don't think it was the content so much as the form that really struck me. Because I think that I re I've always really struggled with this feeling of being inarticulate. And here was something that spoke in a very different way that in itself was sort of inarticulate in the sense that it was not very coherent. Mm -hmm. um, but in another sense, it was very articulate because it was bringing together all of these pieces that we don't normally think of as things that we would put together. So it was very much, I guess, a, you know, a touchstone for me when I was writing my own book, Haunting the Korean Diaspora, in thinking about how to write a history that was very fragmented, that was about displacement, um, and also to, to experiment with different forms. And of course, I also quote the book heavily in my earlier work. And in particular, there's one section of the book at the beginning. Can I read a little bit? Of course you can. So it's, the, it's page three of my copy of it where um, the first lines are, she mimics the speaking that might resemble speech. Anything at all, bared noise, groan, bits torn from words. Since she hesitates to measure the accuracy, she resorts to mimicking gestures with the mouth. And so it sort of goes on like this. And, and you know, I think this is describing someone who's learning how to speak a, a, new, a new language. But for me, it spoke, I think, more broadly about just the difficulty of speaking, of making oneself feel vulnerable to an audience that might judge you or might want to silence you, which so much of my experience prior to that had been. Um, and I used a quote further down on this page, it murmurs inside, it murmurs. Inside is the pain of speech, the pain to say, larger still, greater than is the pain not to say. So this was, that quote was sort of the basis for one of my early performance pieces that was about speaking my family history and particularly around the history of Korean comfort women. And so even within my family, there were a lot of people who didn't want me to speak about it, didn't want me to write about it. And so I, I think I really just sort of clung to that idea that there is this pain of speaking, but that there's even greater pain of not speaking. And so that's something that I've really deeply internalized and sort of carried with me through my life. That, that resonates so deeply on so many different levels. And I feel like we would all have our own stories around that type of thing of, of speaking up. We've been speaking about in academia, what it feels to, to be marginalized and othered, but also within our families mm -hmm. the the you know thinking about sometimes not not pushing the boat not doing anything that that destabilizes stuff at home or with friends I, I often find myself you know the more I, I the more I get really really deep into the way I want to be with other people the more I feel a bit afraid because actually 
I find myself going, oh, that thing that someone just said, I don't think I should let that slide. You know, it's like casual racism all the time. Mm-hmm. Or I'm uh, in a rehearsal room, someone says something so misogynistic. And, and, it, and it becomes, it's frightening to call people out. It's frightening to say this is happening. But I've also come to the realization that it's even harder and more painful to shut up and be quiet because it starts kind of bubbling mm-hmm. up inside. Like you, I, I felt my heart boiling where I'm just like, I can't. And, and then I've been accused of being too woke or, you know, we all have these things of you're too sensitive, but actually there comes a point where things need to be said. And then you find the people that you can say these things with and to. And on some level, it's, it's why we, we're so excited about having these, these conversations with people like you, Grace, because, we want to kind of find the words together, but also encourage other people to be finding these words and how you might think about what it means to, to speak up and speak out. And, you know, it feels like a, an exciting time if we can find the words, you know, if we can play particularly, yeah. and that might be artistically, it might be in it, it might be at college or it might be in other ways. And for us to discover these ways that we can find our voices. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And I think there's something quite permanent about speaking in the sense of once something's said, you can't take it back. And if it's written down, it's even more permanent. So it's almost like an action. You're actually doing something about a, a discrimination or something that you, you don't agree with. So if you don't do that, then that just sits in you and you have to carry it by yourself. You can't, you can't share it with anyone. You can't do anything about it because it's not real in a sense it's not in the world and but also also I'd add that there is a sense of impermanence of everything that we say and do and I mean that in a good way in a celebratory way to say nothing is ever finished Mm -hmm. so actually I can say one thing and then you know what if I got it wrong we can talk about how I got it wrong I can make a piece of work and then someone can critique it and go ah this didn't work and then we can move through it Mm -hmm. but actually you know there isn't a place to get to we but so we need to work through the soil right here and right now and yeah like fear holds a lot back but you know I'm trying to be less afraid yeah. mm. it's interesting because I I also think about uh times when I wish I had said something and there are mm. sometimes those moments haunt me because they're not they were not people that I'll ever see again you know but now I definitely feel like I'm in a position that I can't, you know, that allows me to continue that conversation if I don't say it in the moment. And so I feel, I, I just want to recognize the privilege that I have right now that I have a platform that I can continue to say these things from. So Grace, from that platform, what music would you like to share today? And, and how, did you, how did you choose Feminist Tracks? It was so hard for me to choose music. Um, because I, it wasn't something I'd ever really thought of in relation to a, my feminist journey. Um, I mean, well, I, I'll, I guess I'll start with um, Nina Simone's Four Women, because that one I, does sort of fit into that way of thinking about music. So I was introduced to Nina Simone by my best friend in college, who was a huge Nina Simone fan. Um, and I, I always, I, you know, I loved the song immediately, but I don't think that I really felt how powerful it was until I saw a dance performance a few years later to that song with the four women, four dancers performing the four women. And 
again, it was one of those moments where it was sort of this bodily experience where like I felt something very deep. My son is really into music these days. He's seven. And the way that he describes the feeling that I had was this music pierces my soul. Um, so that's what he says about it. And I, and I just thought, yeah, that is such a great way to describe it. It pierced my soul when I heard it in the context of that dance performance, because in the dance performance were these four women who were embodying the song. And also, uh, you know, I think that there's something really powerful about embodiment whenever you're talking about a, a violent history, because the, the very presence of our bodies shows that we have survived. We have survived all the things that have been intended to try to keep us down um, or to kill us, right? And so that's why it was so powerful to me. And I, you know, I think that especially I related to the woman who was biracial in the song without even knowing that, I, I think at the time I don't, didn't quite know what my own history was, but I always knew that there was much more to my being biracial than just the way that others saw me, which usually was in my during my college experience, people would often say, oh, you're biracial, that's so cool, because you get the best of both worlds, right? And so the idea that being biracial actually is a manifestation of having been colonized, <laughs> in, in my case and in, a, you know, in many situations, I didn't really have the words for it or the knowledge for it, but somehow I felt it through that song and through watching the performance of that song. That, that's beautiful. And I, I think me and your seven-year-old would get, get on really well because that's exactly the kind of thing I'd, oh, it pierces my soul. Um, yeah, we can, we, we can hang out and listen to music. <laughs> and what was the other song that you, you thought of, Grace? So the other song was David Bowie's Changes. And, the, you know, it wasn't obvious to me at all. I had a lot of different songs that I was considering but then I thought back I thought back to my adolescence again that year when I was 15 so a lot happened that year a lot of like really deep traumas happened that year so I had two back-to-back back-to-back sexual assaults that year and at the same time my mother began to hear voices so all of that was sort of happening at the same time and because I was dealing with all of my own shit I couldn't actually recognize what was going on with her at the time and as I mentioned earlier it was this really small xenophobic town and there were times when I felt like I was not going to survive my adolescence and in fact there were a lot of kids who did not survive that town we lost a lot of people we lost people to suicide some people just disappeared I don't know where they went but that you know I remember there was a girl in my class who had been assaulted by the biology teacher. And when her mother approached the school administration about it, they asked her to leave. They asked the family to leave the town because they didn't want to reprimand the teacher at all. So so that's just to sort of give you a sense of the kind of environment that I grew up in. Um, We didn't really, we also didn't really have access to any interesting music, (laughs) you know, other than what was on the radio. So I knew, I only knew, um, you know, the top 40 hits from David Bowie, which I liked. And then one day I went with my best friend to, we, we went on an excursion to Seattle and we found this little record store 
and they had Bowie changes one. And I said, oh, this looks interesting. Let me get this. And when I went home, it was, you know, it was like nothing I'd ever heard before. Um, so I kind of associate that record with being able to get through that period of my life. And, you know, then of course, just like the lyrics turn and face the strange and just this idea that nothing is forever, right? That life is going to go on, things are going to change and I'm gonna get out of this town. Gorgeous, thank you. Well, thank you so much for sharing that really powerful story. And I'm glad that David Bowie could be that moment for you of um, your escape and your um, your journey through and away from that town. Thank you. So we're completing our journey with a feminist object. What would you like to share, Grace? Yeah, so I don't know that, I'm not sure how much a picture really is qualifies as an object because it's also more than an object you know but um I chose this picture of my mother it's it was taken in I guess this was the summer of 1971 when I was six months old we're sitting in the backyard of my grandmother's house in Korea in Busan Korea it's very lush there's all this greenery around <clears throat> she's holding me on her lap and she looks really beautiful in the picture. She looks happy and she looks hopeful because this was shortly before we were about to move to the United States. So I always loved this picture as a child just because I always thought she looked so beautiful in the picture but also because it was for me a real tangible reminder that I was from Korea, that I had been born there, that I had family there. So. It, so it was something that was grounding to me in that way. And then when my mother died suddenly in 2008, she died at the age of 66 of an unknown cause. These pictures of her became even more important to me. And so this again, you know, became even more of my favorite picture because it reminded me of this time, a time when she had a lot of hope and a time before she had become sick. And so I have used this picture as my bookmark. So after, I, after my first book came out, Haunting the Korean Diaspora, every time I gave a talk, I used this as my bookmark to mark the place that I was going to read from. Oh, that's, that's incredibly beautiful. Uh, and I think you've really highlighted for us how, of course, a feminist object is much more than an object that it carries so much weight and history and love and stories of your mother, but also stories of your first book and those experiences with people and other people's relationship with that, with that book. And, and now a little bit our relationship with you and that book and how these, these things from one object can keep growing and changing and evolving. Uh, uh, yeah, such a... a a really a, a meaningful object to share with us. Thank you, Grace. And thank you for this entire conversation. It's been a real treat chatting with you today. Um, thank you for your intimate, beautiful, personal stories. They really mean a lot and, and really help us to uncover our own feminist stories and ideas. So we, we really appreciate it. Um, can we ask, are you on social media? Um, how could people um, keep up with you, um, get in contact? about your new book as well. We definitely recommend the first book, but 
we want to read uh, read the second one too. Sure, um, you can find me on Twitter at Grace M Cho. Um, I'm also on Facebook, and yeah, that's the only social media I use currently. But yeah, thank you so much for inviting me to do this and for coming up with the idea for this podcast. And I'm really looking forward to hearing the others. Um, and especially the the other person who chose um, the bluest eye. I'm very curious about that. And also just to say that in our first episode, your book came up. It does. In the first so episode? Yeah. yeah. So it's all this lovely feminist oh. interweaving. So, you know, we're, we're building an entirely new collective here and it's, it's really thrilling. It's a brilliant idea. Thank you so much. Thank you, Grace. And I'm sure your mother would love to know that she's guarding the pages of your books and the knowledge that you are sharing with people. Um, Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. She's traveled all over the country and the world in this book. (laughs) And helping us build the feminist feminist collective that we want. So it's it's a big task she's undertaking. (laughs) Thanks again, Grace. This has been fantastic. Thank you, my pleasure. And thank you all for listening to the F Less Travel. Please remember to rate, review and subscribe. And most importantly, get in touch and tweet us at F underscore Traveled with your books, songs and feminist objects. Let's reimagine the archives together. Hashtag this is my canon. For transcripts and more information, you can find us at gold.ac.uk forward slash Centre for Feminist Research. With huge thanks to the Centre for Feminist Research for all their support, as well as the Centre for Urban and Community Research and Methods Lab, all based at Goldsmiths College, University of London. And final thank you to Kat Davies Herb for our artwork and Rory Patterson Attenbach for sound production. With feminist love, Amelia and Sabrina.